Today we're going to finish our time in 2 Corinthians, so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians 13. I'm going to read from verses 11 through 14, right there to the end. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, you're more than welcome to use one of the Bibles in front of you. The the passage that we will uh, be in today is uh, found on page 912, if you need some help. Uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, um, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I serve as the lead pastor here at FAC. Uh, after service, please do feel free to come up and say hello. It's always a privilege to uh, connect with new people and, uh, and to meet you and help you um, assimilate into the FAC body the best that we uh, can. Um, you may have noticed it's the first Sunday of the month, and typically it's our pattern on the first Sunday to participate in communion. Uh, and we've deviated from our normal pattern of uh, taking communion before the sermon. Um, please know that this was intentional. Uh, this is not an oversight. We haven't forgotten. Uh, we will participate in communion after the sermon, and we're going to try this out for several months to come. Um, it's our heart's desire not to grow stale and rigid in what we do as we gather here uh, on Sunday mornings. Uh, and so you've probably noticed that we've been experimenting with a lot of different things uh, on Sunday mornings and a lot of different uh, elements, if you will, uh, incorporating them into our service. And so um, we're hoping to just try something new, at least for a season, in uh, participating in communion after the sermon um, one thing we won't deviate, however, is uh, the preaching of God's Word. It's going to happen every single week. And so let's go ahead and turn our attention now to, once again, Second Corinthians 13. Uh, I'll just read those final uh, four verses, verses 11 through 14. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. And Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I was born into a family of five. I am the youngest brother of three sons to my parents. And my membership into uh, my family, my inclusion into my family, it was natural and it was immediate as a result of birth. Um, And when we talk about being born into a family, when I am born into my family, uh, that means that I do not have a choice as to who my family was. In this life, one does not have the luxury of looking around at their family members in the first few hours outside the womb and then saying, thank you for bringing me into this world, um, but I'd, I think I'd like a different family. <laughs> right? Is that, there must be some kind of mistake in the paperwork because this just isn't going to work out. This can't possibly be who my family... Who's the supervisor that I can talk to to make sure this change occurs? We all know the experience. We may not remember the experience of physical birth, but we know the experience of being born into a family. And there may have been times in your life that you wish you could trade out your brothers or your sisters uh, for someone else, but we recognize that it's just not possible. And the same is true of spiritual birth. 
Throughout Scripture, a popular illustration that Jesus himself used of salvation is this idea of spiritual birth, of being born again, right? As the Holy Spirit lifts the veil up away from our blind eyes and we see the glory of God and we turn toward him, we are, as Jesus would call it, born again. We are reborn. And by virtue of being spiritually born, Similarly to our physical births, our membership and our inclusion into the family of God is natural and it's immediate. And in the same way to our physical birth, one cannot be spiritually born and then look around and examine the family of God. Look at brothers and sisters and say, oh, there's got to be a mistake. This, This can't be. Now, if you've been with us as we've studied through 2 Corinthians together, it should be quite jarring to you when we come to verse 11 and Paul begins his closing remarks to this church by writing the two words, finally, brothers. That, that is a jarring concept if you've studied this with us because the entire letter we have witnessed just this deep rift between the Apostle Paul and this church in Corinth. It's very evident in this letter as a whole that there is a broken relationship, not just between Paul and the church, but even relationships within the church. Paul talks about it in verse 20 back on chapter 12, that he's afraid that when he comes this third time that there's still going to be quarreling and there's still going to be jealousy and there's still going to be anger and there's still going to be hostility and there's still going to be slander and there's still going to be conceit and there's still going to be disorder. There's deep divisions within the church of Corinth. And keep in mind that Paul essentially just read them the riot act at the beginning of chapter 13. We looked at that last week and he issued grave warnings to the rebellious in Corinth uh, that, that he would not spare them if he were to show up and then still be living in sin. Yet in verse 11, he still calls them brothers. He does not call him, them his enemies. They are not his opponents. They are brothers. What we see here as a result is that there is a deep bond among believers that goes far beyond a superficial relationship. Sadly, there are some relationships that we have that are very easy to write off should division occur. But my brothers, my siblings, those are relationships that are worth fighting for. For Paul to call them brothers is to say, I know that we've had our disagreements and I know that we've had our fights, but I have this hope that when I come for my visit that that we will be able to reconcile. Because you are my brothers. Paul shows that he actually still views the Corinthians as members of the family of God, despite the fractured relationship. You see, there is great optimism here in these final verses. Great hope. Paul ends on an unusually high note, considering the rest of the latter. There's a silver lining, if you will, that although the situation in Corinth is quite bleak, Paul anticipates reconciliation and resolution because of the nature of being in the family of Christ. We see that not only in his address to them as brothers, but but in the the full uh, verses of of his closing remarks as well. 
as we walk through this, we actually need to know that these final four verses are a very uh, fairly standard way to end a letter at that time, especially for Paul. The, 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 this was um, a formal way, if you will, to end a letter. The conclusion of the letter, it would always include some kind of further instruction and exhortation is what we would call it. Uh, it also included some sort of greetings, and then it would conclude with a blessing of sorts, a wishing of farewell if you will. And we see all three of those sections here in these verses. And at first they may seem distinct and loosely uh, unrelated, but all three of these sections are actually very closely connected and linked. Um, This was actually Paul's pattern to make more of it than just a standard farewell. Every one of Paul's letters ends with these final remarks that in one way or another support a key issue that was addressed in the, in the body of the letter. This right here, it is a conclusion of the letter, and it's a very standard way to conclude a letter, but this is not a conclusion for the sake of just having a tidy conclusion, but instead Paul uses just one more opportunity to shine a spotlight on a key idea that he wants to, to that he wishes to leave with the Corinthians. And so let's take a look at them together. Um, the, the first section, verse 11, is what we would call an exhortation. An exhortation, it's an address or communication that is emphatically urging somebody to do something. And Paul exhorts them with five quick commands in rapid succession. They're all fairly self-explanatory, but we'll briefly look at them one by one. Um, First, he tells them to rejoice. Once again, this is a little odd way to end his letter, right? Because considering the severity of this letter, we might be surprised when Paul says, rejoice. The prior passage spelled out a lot of doom and gloom, as I mentioned, but Paul doesn't instruct them to be downcast. He tells them to have joy, be glad, lift your heads up, because this is not a lost cause. Truth be told, however, Paul already introduced this idea of joy and gladness in the previous passage. If you were to go to verse 9 from chapter 13, Paul tells the Corinthians, for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. The the word glad in that verse is actually the same word that he uses here for rejoice. In the context, Paul is saying that when restoration occurs, When you do the right thing, when you turn away from your sin and you turn to God, we are glad. That brings an abundance of joy. And so this is not an occasion for dread or sorrow. This is an occasion for joy. You see, God is in the business of reconciliation. And so when reconciliation occurs, it is very glorifying to him. Reconciliation between two people or two parties bears testimony, as we'll see later, to the character and nature of God. And any time the nature and character of God is lifted up, is elevated, is put on display, it is an occasion to rejoice, to be glad, to celebrate. Number one, rejoice. Number two, aim for restoration. Aim for restoration. Another way to put this more literally is to mend yourselves together. The the, the picture that we get um, with this verb is 
this uh, picture of a torn fabric, right? A, a piece of cloth that has been ripped. And Paul is saying, bring it back to completion. R- restore it to, to what it once was. Restore it. Uh, pull yourselves together, if you will. And remember, this is a command that Paul gives them, which means that there's action that must be taken. You see, restoration does not happen by itself. A tear in the fabric will never fix itself without some sort of intervention or effort. This is something that we have to work towards. We have to aim for restoration because no amount of passivity will ever mend the tear. The problem will not fix itself. You have to reach across the aisle for this to happen. So Paul says, aim for restoration. That's number two. Number three, comfort one another. Comfort one another. This is a call to come alongside each other with the expressed intent to encourage one another, to be there for somebody. You can say that this is a call to have each other's back, if you will. I'm reminded in basketball games, if you're familiar with basketball, oftentimes players will fall, but, but he always has two, mate, two teammates at his side to pick him up. There's this clip from um, the Los Angeles Lakers uh, where a player had fallen down and he got up by himself and LeBron James actually, of all people, goes up to him and he says, you stay down. When you fall down, stay down because your brothers will come and pick you up. And this is the idea of comforting one another. The, the, the path that the believer travels is harsh and it's unrelenting uh, by nature. Following Jesus in and of itself will breed pain and it will breed hurt. But in God's glorious design of his family, in having brothers and sisters in Christ, we do not walk alone. Nor should we try. Our journey on this broken globe is side by side. It is arm in arm. And so it is a responsibility that we have individually toward one another as members of Christ to walk arm in arm with each other. You see, as, as believers, we are not just committed to God, but we are committed to each other. And so Paul says, comfort, come alongside, comfort one another. That's number three. Number four, agree with one another. Agree with one another. To agree with one another in this context means to be like-minded, to be of one mind. Literally, it could read, think the same thing. Now, before we determine what it means, uh, we need to know what this does not mean. Okay, being of one mind does not mean that we will agree 100% on every matter of life. Given the beautiful diversity in the local church, This is simply impossible to agree on every single issue or on every minuscule detail. And to enforce that and to try and expect that would actually not be authentic unity, but instead it would be authoritarian uniformity, which is not unity. Right? It would not, to make people agree on everything would not be organic, it would actually be fabricated. It would be manufactured. There are entire countries that try and build on the principle that we can make people agree. 
And while it may look like everyone's on the same page, that they are on one mind, it is very evident that they are not, that they do not agree with one another. This is a manufactured in an attempt to give off the impression of unity, which is no unity at all. We cannot sit here then and insist that everyone should be in agreement 100% of the time. But we can insist on everyone being like-minded or of one mind. And so what, what does it mean to be of one mind? It means that we can and should agree on the main things, on the primary things. And we, it's okay to agree to disagree on things that aren't the primary things, that are, that are things that are the secondary things. Unfortunately, where the break happens here is that many of us try to take secondary things and elevate them to a place of prominence. We try to make them a primary thing. And so part of agreeing with one another, of being like-minded, is having the discipline and spiritual maturity enough to say that while I deeply, deeply care about this issue, I recognize that it's a secondary matter and therefore not worth dividing my family over. You see, the fault is not in having the opinions or having the sound judgment. The fault is when you take a secondary item and use it to drive a wedge between the body when you divide. Scripture is clear and consistent that the unity of the family of God is actually a primary thing, right? This means that in God's eyes, the unity of the family of God is more important, believe it or not, than how you feel about a secondary issue. So Paul tells the Corinthians, agree with one another, be like-minded. And then finally, Paul tells the Corinthians to live in peace to cultivate peace. Simply put, peace is a byproduct of reconciliation. If you have aimed for restoration, if you have mended yourself, if you have have each other's back, if you agree with one another, you will experience peace. And once again, this characterizes who God is. Our God is not a God of order, disorder, confusion, but a God of peace. Basically, Paul is saying our own relationships should reflect the peace of God. Our conduct should reflect the presence of God, which is what we have. And and Paul mentions that as a tag to these exhortations. Rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, as a quick side note, let's not misunderstand what Paul is saying here. It would be easy to read this as if the presence of God is conditional, or that he will only be with the Corinthians if they do these things, but this is not how that is written. Uh, What Paul means here is that as you pursue these things, as you work towards these things, we can trust that just as the presence of the God of love and peace is with us in the past, and as he is with us now, he will be with us in the future as well. These, these commands are tough, right? This is hard. This is hard work. This is something that we need to strive for, but we do not pursue them on our own. We are actually not powerless to pursue such things. Why? Because the presence of the God of love and peace is with us. We have this promise that he will be with us. Now, 
while all five of these quick commands are important in and of themselves, they, they all hold up individually, right? They all stand alone. What's more important, however, is the one central theme that they all point to. Paul, in his closing remarks, he shoots these five rapid-fire commands with a singular focus on bringing unity, if you haven't figured it out yet, to the Corinthian church. That is the lasting idea that Paul wants to leave with the Corinthians, that they should strive for unity, that unity is something to be valued. And Paul takes further opportunity to drive this point home uh, in the second section of his closing remarks, in the greetings section. First, Paul instructs them to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, now in our culture and in our context, this might seem a little awkward. You read that and say, what? <laughs> what does this mean? Right? It, it doesn't mean what might, we might imagine. The type of kiss that Paul refers to is it's not sensual or romantic, but familial. Right? It wouldn't be a kiss on the lips necessarily, most likely not, but one on the cheek or one on the forehead or on the hand. And it would always be done to welcome somebody or even to say goodbye to someone as a way to display just a sincere affection for and unity with each other. This practice still survives in uh, most European cultures. You've seen it before. Maybe you've experienced it. I know I have. Um, my mother-in-law, she, she comes from a 100% Irish family. She's one of 11 kids that were born in a span of 12 years. <laughs> True story. The first year that I dated my wife, we went to Thanksgiving on her mom's side. I'm like 16 years old, and I had ants kissing me that I had never met before in my life. On the cheek, on the forehead, you, you name it, I had to wipe lipstick off myself. That's the kind of kiss that Paul is referring to, and this was a significant gesture in the first century church which expressed love and expressed unity. And so in calling the Corinthians to greet each other with a holy kiss, Paul is reinforcing their unity, calling them to celebrate the deep spiritual reality that they are one in Christ as a local body of believers. Now hear me out here. I'm not suggesting that we go around kissing each other this morning in our own context. But this should say something about our very own body language towards each other. Right? Perhaps something to consider is that our body language says something about the unity of a church. You walk into other organizations and you can tell that they are not unified, that they are not combined, but you should be able to walk into a local church as a visitor and witness the body language between other believers and it should speak to their unity. What does our body language say? Now, this theme of unity, it continues on in the second part of the greeting section. Um, typically, Paul would conclude his letters by sending his greetings from specific people. Right? He would write, so-and-so sends their greetings. So-and-so wants to say hello uh, to you. They've told me, tell the Corinthians that I've said hello. Um, but here, Paul takes a little bit of a different approach in that he says, all the saints greet you. The word saints we know to mean believers. If you are a believer, you are a saint. And so Paul is saying all of the believers send their greetings to you. 
Once again, Paul is strategic and purposeful in his writing. He, he is using this typical literary convention of greetings to make a point. He's actually expanding the sphere of unity in saying that all the saints greet you, all believers send their greetings. He's making the point and reminding the Corinthians that not only do they belong to each other, but they also belong to a wider community of believers outside of their own city. Paul emphasizes not just their oneness in the local church, but also their oneness in the universal church. Now consider how profound that concept is. Our inclusion and unity within the universal church throughout not just this time, but all time periods demonstrates that our bond is none other than the blood of Christ. Because one could walk into a local church and reasonably arrive at the conclusion that there is unity because they come from the same area or because they come from the same ethnic background or because they come from the same economic class or because they come from the same social status or they have all the same preference in preaching style or they all have the same preference in music style or whatever, whatever, you name it, right? Whatever we have come together and can agree on in the secondary, somebody could look at that and say, that is the thing that, that unifies them. But when one considers the unity of the universal church, there is no other contributing factor that bonds us than the blood of Jesus. There is nothing that you can point to here on this earth other than Jesus that explains such a bond. It is altogether glorious to God that someone like me, a young white man who grew up in a white suburb east of Cleveland, can be unified with a senior citizen Chinese woman with an urban background, and I can in good conscience call her my sister if she is in Christ. Where the world would say, you have virtually nothing in common. You can't even speak each other's language. We can proudly proclaim that this is the strength of our unity. This is the bond that we have in Christ. And this is why it's so refreshing to meet other believers uh, that you've never met before. Because it's like being introduced to a long lost brother or sister. There is an immediate kinship when you meet other believers that is unlike any other person because of the unity of the universal church, which is the point that Paul makes. Once again, in this greeting section, Paul expands this sphere of unity. Right, The magnitude of the bond grows as Paul so moves so eloquently from the local church context to the universal church context. And you may miss it, but he actually doesn't stop there because he continues on in this theme as he comes to the final section, the final verse, the blessing. As Paul points to the greatest unity there is, the highest bond of all, a divine unity. I want you to understand how um, interesting this verse is, verse 14, because in most of Paul's letters, he finishes by saying, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And then he leaves it at that. Yet here in 2 Corinthians, he closes in a way that is actually unique to 2 Corinthians. He does not close any of his other letters in this way. 
Right? There's no other letter that Paul closes in the way as he shares this typical blessing. Right? What does he say? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It is no coincidence. This is intentional. Paul exhorts the Corinthians to unity in these final verses and then closes the entire letter with a blessing which references all members of the Trinity. No better way to end a letter that strives for community and unity and reconciliation amongst divisions than pointing to the perfect model of congregational unity, God himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, we worship a triune God. There is one God in three distinct Persons. God does not take on different forms. God exists eternally as one God in three different persons. And those three different persons simultaneously existing are communal by nature for all eternity. God by nature is unified. The, the three perfect persons of the Trinity have been in perfect unity for all eternity and they will be. And, and we... As human beings, we're made in his image, which means that unity is woven into the very fabric of our souls. In God's original design for us, we were in perfect unity with him and we were in perfect unity with each other. And when sin entered the world, there was a deep wedge driven between us and God. And as a result, there was a deep wedge driven between us and each other. And what Paul reminds us in these final verses is the sequential restoration process, what it looks like. You you may think it's odd. You typically, when you talk about the Trinity, hear about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yet Paul writes it in a different order. He he writes about Jesus and then God the Father and then the Holy Spirit. Why is this so? Well, well, he's telling the story of the experience of the individual believer, right? As they are brought to a place of, of restored relationships. Road markers, if you will, on a map that they travel through as they experience God Almighty. It starts with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In our wretched sin, Christ demonstrated grace. He showed us favor as he willingly took our sin at the cross so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Paul writes. That's Christ's grace providing a way where there was no way so that we would become the righteousness of God. And it's on the basis of such a gracious act that we actually come to know the love of God. We, we know God loves us because of Christ's grace. Paul writes this in Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's grace is the ultimate display of God's perfect love. If you want to know that God loves you, look to the cross because it's the greatest demonstration. He loves us in a lot of ways, but that's the only one we need to see the love of God. And as a result of Christ's grace, which displayed God's love, we are given the Holy Spirit. We are brought into fellowship with God himself. Our our relationship with God, which was once fractured by our own sin, is restored. 
those who have turned to Christ and trusted him in him for their salvation are now in fellowship with God, just as it was originally designed by him. And as we have entered into fellowship with God, we have also entered into fellowship with each other. This is why unity within the family of God is so critical. Because it's a picture of God's character. It is a picture of God's nature. And it is a picture of what we have in Christ. The glorious name and will of God is tarnished when we are divided. But oh, what fantastic glory is given to God when we are restored to each other and unified. This in and of itself is reason enough to come and gather on a Sunday morning with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Because even just our presence, even just being here in this moment, bears testimony in points to the magnificent character and nature of God. And we seek to bring him glory in all that we do. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, unity within the body and we recognize, Lord, that this is impossible without the the, the bond of Christ. We see how much division um, is in the world. Lord, there are a million and one reasons to be divided, Father, but your word tells us there's only one reason to be unified, and that is through the blood of Christ. And for that, we praise you, Lord, that, that you made a way, not just for us to be restored to you, but to be restored to each other, Father. And I pray for relationships that are represented here, Father, that should there be brokenness, should there be division, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you renew and restore and bring reconciliation so that at the end of the day, we can look to you and praise your mighty name and praise your mighty work for mending what was broken. We thank you, Lord, for the cross. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen. It's been said that preaching God's word is like feeding people a spiritual meal. You've heard me uh, say that. And and now having served the meal, uh, we do gather together at this time as one body around the table for communion. And so if you haven't had the chance to open up your communion cups, I'd encourage you to do that now. Or if you haven't uh, even picked one up out of the hallway, please uh, go grab that right now. And in light of what was just preached from God's word, let me remind you that the Lord's Supper should always be conducted in the context of the gathering of believers. Paul in 1 Corinthians would actually go as far to say that it's actually not the Lord's Supper unless done in that context, unless done within the gathering of believers. See, many people have the assumption that communion is an individual experience and a time for me to individually reflect on my own walk with Christ. But biblically, communion is a time for us to corporately, together, as one body, remember what Christ did for us on the cross. And so feel free as we do come into a time of remembrance. Um, Don't feel like you have to just sit there by yourself 
with your own thoughts, feel free as we come into a time of reference to turn to a brother or a sister in Christ. Engage in a time of prayer with them. Engage in a time of remembrance with them so that this is not just an individual experience, but a family experience, a corporate run. Um, please also know that you don't need to be a member or even a regular attender here at FAC to participate with us. Um, this speaks to the universal church. If you are a uh, Christ follower, if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and you're walking in fellowship with him, I invite you to participate with us. Uh, and if you are not a follower of Jesus here today, we welcome you. We are glad that you're here. Um, but I would just politely ask that you refrain um, from taking the elements with us uh, because this is not uh, just a mere formality. This is a serious activity for those who are in the family of God who believe in Jesus. Um, If that is you, however, let me encourage you uh, to use this time wisely. And as you think, um, would you please consider uh, putting your faith and trust in Jesus? Would you please consider what God has done and how he has showed his love to you and how Christ has given you grace so that you may also experience the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to pray and then we'll take a few moments to remember together what Christ has done on our behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you as we come around this table for what you have done and who you are. And I pray, Father, Um, that as we do remember you, not just individually, but corporately, um, we would give you praise, Father, for what Jesus has done on the cross and the pouring out of his blood and the breaking of his body so that we may have life. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen.
the night that Jesus was portrayed, um, he took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's together take and eat. In the same way, um, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is uh, the blood that has been poured out for you. Uh, do this in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and take this cup, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so we proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection here in this moment as we take and drink. Let's drink together. Let's go ahead and close our time by singing one more song. Would you please stand and worship with us through song? No more. 
For our hearts have seen the beauty of our great divine Lord. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together. Together, Lord, find us together, Lord, find us together in love. Precious Jesus, promise keeper, set our minds on things above. All the wonder of this moment and the glory still to come. Justice rolling like a river, every wrong will be made right. And we will stand as one forever, sons and daughters of the light. Presence. Presence all together, every nation, tribe, and tongue, singing songs of our redemption. We at last and finally Man, you may be seated. Um, before we uh, depart and close our time together, I do want to give you just some exciting news uh, concerning some uh, staff transition. Um, we, we've actually, for quite some time in here, have been developing a new staff position. We, we used to have a similar role, uh, but this new position will... Um, it's significantly changed. It's taken on different, many different shapes and sizes. Um, this new position that we've hired is called the Director of Assimilation and Community Groups. Um, and so I've, I've, I've actually likened this position to that of a uh, traffic director on a two-way street in that the position is going to oversee two flows of traffic, if you will. They're going to oversee um, the process of assimilating people to FAC, uh, to the greater body, right? Taking new people that have nothing to do with us and don't know who we are or what we are and uh, getting them plugged into the greater body as we gather. Um, and, and then the position will also oversee going the other direction, taking the greater FAC body and, and mobilizing them into what we call community groups, um, smaller groups for a greater community impact and spiritual development. Um, we've been talking about this process, like I said, for some time, um, and uh, the the uh, position we've actually filled, we've promoted Megan Lawson uh, to this position. Uh, th this is Megan, if you don't know her, let's give her a hand. Megan, come on, come on up and join me real quick. Megan's been serving, actually, in our youth ministry for the last five years. 
um, over five years now in the youth ministry. She has completely knocked it out of the park, and I have full confidence that uh, she will do very, very well in this role. And so I did want to introduce her to you, and uh, she's eager to get to know people and get to know newer people. And um, I want you to know community groups, it's going to take on a little bit of a different flavor than um, what we know as small groups or what we've had as small groups in the past, as Megan and I have spoken a lot in this past year, what these could look like. And so try not to get any ideas in your head about what these are going to look like, because it's probably going to look like something different. Um, we're hoping to relaunch that, or launch that, if you will, um, later on in the year is our hope. Um, we'll share more details as we come. The assimilation process, though, we are ready to relaunch, and it is going to look very similar to what we used to do before the pandemic. Um, on March 6th, we actually will be hosting a welcome lunch uh, for anyone who is newer to FAC. And so if you uh, have started attending FAC uh, in, in the, since the last welcome lunch, which, believe it or not, was before the pandemic. Um, so if you are new within the last two years, uh, we invite you to join us for a free lunch on March 6th. It is free. We do ask that you register, and you can register at the Hub today, right? They've got a sign-up sheet as well. Uh, you can register online or register at the, uh, at the Hub after service. It's a great opportunity for you to connect with other new people, and we actually invite our staff, uh, some of our ministry leaders uh, as well, that you can uh, meet. And so I hope that you can make it. And then from there, we're going to go into an intro to FAC course in subsequent weeks. Um, so if you're interested in membership, please keep an ear out for our intro to FAC class. That'll start the following week. We'll get more details um, to you as we go. Um, for now, I'd like to pray for Megan as she comes into a, this new ministry role and for the life of FAC. So would you pray with me as we lift her up in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much um, for Megan and just the, the wonderful servant that she has been, such a servant's heart um, as she has served faithfully in the youth ministry for these last five years through a couple different transitions, some very tough times, Lord, um, but uh, she, she's done so well, Lord, and so we look forward to this new ministry and this new opportunity for her. We lift her up to you, Father, and we pray that you would, you would bless her and that you would bear much fruit through her work, Father. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Megan. Um, with that, let's go ahead and close our time together with a benediction from God's word. Would you please uh, stand as we close out? This comes from Romans 15, uh, verses 5 through 6. Paul writes, Now may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go in peace. God bless you guys.